So welcome back to a, another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I am joined by Michelle Miller. Uh, you may know her as the farm babe. Uh, she started off with a career in fashion and then got bit by the travel bug at some point and decided to become a globetrotter. So she traveled all over, seeing all sorts of wonderful things, working. Uh, she even was a bartender uh, for a while at some point. Uh, and then eventually she met a farmer from Iowa and decided that that was going to be her future. So she ended up moving to Iowa and learning more about farming and agriculture in general, uh, and then eventually became a science communicator where she now communicates and advocates for science within the agricultural sphere. Anyway, Michelle, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing this morning? Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Excellent. So your, your backstory is just fascinating because you kind of, kind of went all over the place here. One of your favorite taglines that we talked about just before we got started here was you went from Rodeo, Beverly Hills to the rodeo. Yeah. So I'm just, <laughs> I'm just curious if we could like kind of go through that. So you started off in fashion. So how did that all work? Yeah, I grew up in Wisconsin and I was around agriculture as a kid. A lot of my friends were farm kids and so I was in 4-H and always really loved the farm life. But when I finished high school, I just kind of wanted to see what else was out there because living in Wisconsin your whole life. Um, so I moved to Los Angeles, got a degree from the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising and Visual Communications. So I worked for Gucci on Rodeo Drive worked for Saks Fifth Avenue in Chicago. Um, I was really just into fashion for, uh, for a while using my degree. Um, but then I realized there wasn't really a lot of money in it. And so I got a, a sales career in Chicago for a while and, and wanted to travel the world. So um, I moved to Florida, was bartending on a white sand beach and traveling the world and um, visited every continent. That, that was my goal. I wanted to visit all seven continents by the time I was 30. So 67 countries later, uh, here I am on a farm in Iowa. <laughs> when I was, I was bartending in Florida, Pensacola Beach, and that's where I met my boyfriend. And so I moved to Iowa for him and uh, have been up here now for a uh, little over six years. So that's a, that's a fascinating story. Okay. So I am also a huge <laughs> fan of travel. Place. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely love travel myself. And I did a bunch of it when I was in my twenties. I still like to travel when I can. So all seven continents, I really, really need to hear the story about how you made it to Antarctica then. Yeah, so to get to Antarctica, you uh, take a, I took like a fly cruise. So it's out of Ushuaia, Argentina. It's one of the southernmost cities in the world. Um, so you just take a, like an ice ship down to Antarctica and then you fly back. And so it's just, it was like a, a five day cruise. Um, it was kind of like the the quick one, you know, there's some that do like these big, long expeditions. They're so ridiculously expensive. So I just did like the five day where they constantly have ships going down and flights coming back. But you do stop on mm -hmm. the mainland. You stop in some islands. We stopped at this cool, like military base in, in Chile, like the southernmost military base and some of these like research stations in Antarctica and all that. So yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Not everyone can say they've been to Antarctica. I think the people that I know that have been to Antarctica, Antarctica have only been there for research purposes, like they're scientists. Yeah. I, um, I one of my undergraduate degrees is in geology, and I knew people that would go and do research in Antarctica, but I never 
never have met anyone that actually has gone there recreationally would be my first. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was cool too on the ship because there was a bunch of scientists on the ship too. So like every day, because it, it takes a couple of days to get down there. And so every day they'd have like different scientists talking about it. And, you know, there was, there's so much wildlife. So they're there to teach you about it and kind of do some bird watching. We saw some whales and seals and penguins. And so it was definitely a lot of science and education in the way, uh, on the way. And then, um, yeah, you cruise down and then fly back to uh, Chile. So okay. it was, so I, I kind of backpacked through like the Patagonia area and stuff too. Oh, and, so jealous. Um, yeah, it's, it's really beautiful. Like of yeah, all that's the on my Patagonia is on my bucket list. I'm yeah. Sure. I really, really the, want to see that. The pictures just don't do it justice. There's like Torres del Paine National Park and um, all that stuff down there is, uh, is really incredible. I highly recommend anybody do it. Yeah, I um, have recently traveled to Iceland. Actually, oh yeah, I went there yeah. last year. I, it, it's just so beautiful there. Yeah, and, um, it was so gorgeous. Uh, I went with a couple of good friends. One of them uh, from graduate school, and then like one of his good childhood buddies. And we went to Iceland in 2017. Yeah, 2017, and then we just and we loved it so much. And unfortunately, we weren't able to do everything that we wanted to do. So we decided to actually go back. We went back last year. So uh, I've been okay. to Iceland twice in the past like three years. And it's nice. just, I was just blown away by how unbelievably beautiful it is. The landscapes are gorgeous. Yeah. Um, the people are great there. It's a very small town. I'm sure that, you know, somebody who lives in Iowa right now, and you know what it, it's like to be in a, that small town feel, uh, even being in Reykjavik, the primary city in Iceland felt as though I was like in a small town. Like oh, there's yeah. no real big buildings and everything, every building has a real flavor of its own, uh, like a real small business, kind of like downtown atmosphere. Uh, and the people are wonderful. And I just, yeah, I just thought sure. it was great. So yeah, it's like being on another planet almost, you know, yeah, yeah. you kind of get out of it and venture off into these other like desolate areas. You're like, what is this? <laughs> it's yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah. But I'm a huge fan of travel. So I'm Me a little too. bit, I'm a little bit jealous. You said 67 countries? Yeah. 67. Oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> my goodness. So did you see a lot of like Southeast Asia too? Yeah. I Yeah. I, uh, I used to live in China actually, which is kind okay. of what, what started. Um, I worked in fashion for a while, but like I said, there wasn't a lot of money in it. And so that was kind of the main reason I left. Um, and then, um, I moved to China, I taught English, and that was really kind of what sparked my uh, interest in travel because China is like the whole, like a complete opposite of how we live, right? And so that was, I was like, wow, you know, what else is out there? So that's really what launched it. But so I lived in China and then I backpacked through Southeast Asia, you know, and kind of did a bunch of little flights around there. So I did like Malaysia and Singapore, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, all over the place. So yeah, it's pretty cool. That's awesome. What did you think of Singapore? Yeah. Uh, it's awesome. It, it, it's it's so clean, right? I mean, it really oh, yeah. lives up to the it really lives up to the reputation. You know, when they talk about how uh, strict it is with like littering laws and regulations yep. and and everything. I mean, it's such a clean city, and there's just so much to do, and there's it's so different. You know, we did like the night zoo one night, where you take the the uh, there's like a train that goes to the zoo at night. So you see all the nocturnal animals up, mm -hmm. you know, but then there's like great shopping and there's like the islands and it was fun. Yeah. You, have you been? Yeah, I've been to, uh, I've been to Singapore. 
Okay. And I, um, I did a stopover. My brother and I did a spontaneous trip. I had lived overseas in France because um, I was trying to get a PhD in nuclear fusion and Europe is big into that area of cool. research. Um, and I was living over there for seven months. My brother wanted to do international travels. So he was going to come visit me in France, but then I ended up moving back because everything kind of fell apart. Sure. So he was like, well, I still have got all this airline credit because that I need to use. Do you want to do a trip? And I was like, okay, well, I'm not really doing a whole lot right now. So we ended up on Southeast Asia. Uh, and we were, it was going to be, it was a toss up between Indonesia or Thailand. And then we went for Indonesia. Uh, and one nice. of the places that we stopped on the way to Indonesia was Singapore. We did a day, we did a day nice. or two in uh, Singapore uh, because it was just some place that we decided that we absolutely needed to see it. And it yeah. was, it was just, it's, it's just a beautiful country slash city. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, for sure. It, it's and just that's, gorgeous the way that they've built, they have so much vegetation. Like there's just plants everywhere. It's like a, a city jungle almost. And then the fusion of culture there is incredible. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, you have Japanese people there, you have Indian people, you have Chinese, uh, you have people from the various countries surrounding it. So Indonesian people, Thai. Uh, Malaysia. Yeah, yeah, it it's just cool. an incredible mount, uh, melting pot, uh, and all of this kind of fusion of culture has created an incredible food scene. So if you like I eating, I was just which is gonna most, say, yeah. yeah, the food scene is so good. Yeah, well, and that's what's nice about those flights that you can kind of jump around is, and sometimes they do just, it was almost like going to Iceland, right? Like they have so many different flights. If you book it right, you can do like a day or two layover, you know, or like find a really good deal on a flight. So yeah, we did that too. Um, I went with a couple friends of mine. This was several years ago, but yeah, to get to Bali, you're like, okay, well, if we do it this way, you can do it here. But for a hundred bucks more, you get this insane long <laughs> layovers. It's like, even if you're just doing like, I think I did Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in like a day. And it's like, okay, okay. we'll just do like the hop on hop off bus and like, just do like a little crash course <laughs> of a day. I was like, all right, let's do it. You know? <laughs> so that, yeah, that's awesome. yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, like for me, traveling is a form of education, like going out and experiencing new cultures and just oh, yeah. seeing how other people live. Um, it's, it's like in the top three of things that I love spending my money on. Same, <laughs> go, same. Going out, like yeah. going out and seeing the world and just seeing 100%. how yeah. other people do it. I've never been a fan of stuff, you know, it's like, yeah. so for me, it's like, all I need in life is like a passport and a credit card. Like, let's go. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, that's, but that's now, shocking because but now I'm on a farm too. So, Hey, you know, yeah. you got to kind of be there too, but <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay. So, all right. So yeah, it's traveling the world. And then at some point you end up in Florida, you said, and then you met mm -hmm. your, uh, you met a farmer from Iowa. Yeah. And yeah. okay, so then you decided to move to Iowa. Uh, how long ago was this? Like early 2000s? 2014. 2000, oh, yeah. okay. 2014. Yeah. yeah. And then at what? Yeah. Okay. So 2014. And then at some point you decided that you wanted to become an advocate in the agri agricultural space for presenting facts and yeah. you know, promoting the science. So I'm just really curious to hear how it is that you went from, okay, you found yourself on a farm to then becoming the farm bait essentially. 
Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, I, I lived in Los Angeles and Chicago and uh, really had kind of fallen victim to a lot of the misinformation out there. And so when I ended up coming to the Iowa farm, you know, here I was um, with a farmer who was growing GMOs. And so that to me was like, whoa, like I had kind of been this anti-GMO activist. And so it was just, I started learning, right? And he uh-huh. looked at me like I was three heads when he learned that I was against GMOs, you know? And yeah. so I, when he just taught me, like, you know, it, it, we'll talk about Monsanto, right? Because there's so much controversy around that or whatnot. But, you know, if, if you're around here in Iowa and you talk to farmers and you say it, Monsanto, like nobody thinks they're bad or weird. So it's um, the misinformation out there. Like, I was like, what? Everybody knows Monsanto GMOs are evil. And then when you talk to the farmers, they're like, huh, what? They are like, no, they're not. <laughs> so it's, those, those ideas are so far removed. And so I really kind of started my blog to say like, GMOs are good. And on the other side of that, it's like, there's so many large scale farms around me, what you might call factory farms. And, you know, even dating a farmer is like, you know, he's using growth hormones sometimes and sometimes he uses antibiotics. And so all these things that I had once feared, like I was this big advocate for like clean eating and organic and non-GMO. And that's what I believed as a city girl. But when you really dig in on the science, you realize that a lot of that stuff's just marketing and it's really not true. And so that's really kind of what it started off as, is just to debunk those myths. Yeah. So you know, it's funny that you say that at one point in your life that you used to be against GMOs because I actually have a similar story where mm-hmm. not only was it GMOs, but uh, for a while there too, I was questioning the safety of vaccines, but that's for another time. But as far as GMOs, <laughs> yeah, but as far as GMOs go, I had at one point also convinced myself. Yeah. And as you know, I'm going currently going through a PhD program. I'm uh, I'm by all means a scientist and I was even able to convince myself. So. Yeah, same. These things, well, these things happen. Yeah, well, and if you look at the influence, right? I mean, there's so much money to be made off of consumer fear. And so, uh, you know, even myself too, it's like, I mean, I graduated high school with a 4.0. I was like, you know, good grades, 3.9 college GPA. Like I was like, you know, I'm not a stupid person, but you know, when you don't get to talk to farmers, And that's really the thing is who's carrying the message. It's the food companies and them trying to sell you a product and they want to sell you organic and non-GMO because they make more money. And there's only 10 GMOs to begin with. So, so many of these brands just throw non-GMO on it and the people don't even know what a GMO is. So they're like, okay, well, that sounds good. Um, But oftentimes they're on products that don't even have a GMO counterpart. But, like Himalayan, like Himalayan sea salt. I've seen, yeah, I've seen yeah, I've seen it on bug spray. Like what? Yep. It's so yep. weird. Um, um, so, or my favorite, one of my favorites that people might not actually catch at first is the non-GMO label on bread. And yeah. as you know, there's no GMO wheat available unless that's changed. I mean, yeah, no, there's no GMO <laughs> wheat, but there can be GMO additives, like you know, with sugars yeah. and stuff like that that can be derived from GE crops. But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, where we are in Iowa, we're corn and soybean country, and 90 or 95 percent of farmers are choosing to grow GMO crops, and so you have to ask why. And so that was really what I was learning about, which sparked me wanting to start the Farm Babe was okay, GMOs actually allow farmers to no longer have to spray insecticides. They allow farmers to adhere to no-till farming practices better or reduce their chemical usage, grow more crop on less land, save crops from disease, like whatever the case may be, farmers grow them for a reason. And so you have these myths out there, people saying, oh, farmers are just beholden to Monsanto and they're forced to do this and all this stuff. And it's like, no, we have plenty of companies to choose from. 
And, you know, we choose to grow what we want to grow based on our climate and soil type. And, you know, if it, if it helps the planet, we're going to do that. And so I think that's what pissed me off the most was coming from a point of wanting to care about the environment because we all care about the environment, but thinking, well, I care about the planet, so I have to avoid GMOs when the opposite is true. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter what the food label says. I mean, like organic non-GMO or GMO crop, it, it, it just depends on the pest pressure and what's going on and how you manage that. But, but for us in Iowa, GMO is the way to go for the most part. So. Yeah, particularly if you're growing the, uh, like the corn and the, sorbe- the soybean. So those have yeah. been genetically engineered uh, for a purpose to be, right. you know, to, to grow more per acreage, to allow you, as you said, to, to use uh, less insecticide. You know, what's funny too is that, so Monsanto is like the, the grand villain of anyone who is an anti-GMO individual. And sure. there are multiple other companies out there that yeah, have yeah. genetically engineered products. Mm-hmm. They do the exact same thing, yet nobody yeah. ever hears about it, right? But nobody They're ever like... hears about it. It's always just Monsanto. <laughs> yeah. uh, Monsanto and Bill Gates sometimes. Right, right, exactly. Coupled with vaccines sometimes as well. Um, you know, they're out to depopulate and kill humanity. So. I know, which is great for business, right? <laughs> Sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, right. Let's, let's make money by selling our, by killing our customers. Great idea, right? Yeah, it, um, does, it doesn't make yeah, any sense, but it does. I mean, but, it, it, but it's influential, you know? Yeah, no, no, Some absolutely. The, the, the it, movies that are out there and, and then farmers are 1% of the population and they are out busy working. And so you just don't always get to hear their stories. So I wanted to give them a bigger voice. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, part of the reason why farmers <laughs> are only, as you said, 1% of the population is because of technologies such as genetically modified foods, where you can have one individual growing so much more food than we could in the past. Yeah. So, uh, if you look at how agriculture has transformed over the past century, less and less of the population has been able to actually grow more food because mm-hmm. of technologies such as genetic engineering to create genetically yep. modified uh, organisms or, or food. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, yeah. Yep, there's this disconnect, I think, because people have become so spoiled with, from our food supply, you know, it's the same thing that happens with, uh, for example, with vaccines, people are so spoiled by not having these diseases around, or in this instance, uh, with genetically modified foods, you're so spoiled with having this abundance of food and that there's, there's just, just huge disconnect between um, yeah, the food that you consume and where it comes from, and people just don't mm-hmm. understand it. So first world problems it. at their finest. <laughs> yeah, no, it it really is, and I I hate to say that, but it is a it is a first world problem. I mean, for example, you know the the vaccine, you know that is for sure a first world problem as well, because if you were in a third world country, you know you you see people lining up and walking miles in order to get an inoculation because they know how bad these diseases are. Uh, right. So for example, people here. You know, going back to foods, you know, they just have to develop a further understanding. And some people do, you know, um, it's not everyone, but we have a good You and I portion. changed our minds, right? Yeah, so well, if we, we can, did, other people yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If we changed our minds, then everyone else can as well. And or it's so just we hope. Being, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> so no, it's, it's, it's a noble, it's a noble fight. It's a noble, <laughs> yeah, noble pursuit. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but yeah, that's, that's really, really interesting. So what would you say then, what are some of the give me like top three common myths surrounding the genetically modified foods then 
I mean, that I think... you deal with on a regular basis? Because you are out there, you deal with the public on a much larger scale than I do, um, at least in this space. So I'm just curious as to what are some of the common, common concerns about genetically modified foods and what would be the answer for that? Like, for that... example, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, okay. Sure. Um, Okay. So, uh, so I think definitely the whole glyphosate roundup would be the biggest one where um, people think we're just like drenching our crops in it and that it's like causes cancer or something. So the glyphosate one would be the biggest. Um, But if you look at the science behind that and like, so for us, for example, we only spray that herbicide two days an entire year, but just because we're growing like a Roundup ready type of seed, just because we're growing like GMO crops does not necessarily mean we're using Roundup. And so they automatically think GMOs equal Roundup, which is not at all true. And so sometimes we do, but sometimes we don't. And this year we've actually completely switched up our herbicide program to try something totally different, which yeah, doesn't have it at all. So as farmers, it's important to kind of alternate different chemistries so you don't have weed resistance. Um, So we're trying that. Uh, So, but anyway, if you do look at something like Roundup, you know, we spray two days an entire year at the very beginning of the growing season at a rate of about 22 ounces per acre. So that's a little less than say two beer cans on an area of land that's around the size of a football field. So people freak out thinking we're using all these chemicals when it's extremely minimal. And so when you see a sprayer, it's like 99% of what's coming out of that sprayer is water. And so people think we're just drenching it, which isn't true. It's uh, chemicals are used very minimally two days an entire year at the beginning of the growing season. So we, we plant, we spray, and then about a month or two later, we'll spray again. So, so we're waiting now for this first flush of, or second flush of weeds, and then we'll go out and spray here probably in a few weeks will be the second pass. Um, and so that's kind of the biggest one. If you look at, well, people say, oh, glyphosate causes cancer, but there's so much research behind it proving that it's not a carcinogen. But then if you look at the people saying, oh, it, the IARC says it's, it might be a carcinogen, but they say that literally about everything ever. No. <laughs> it's like everything. But it's so easy to go down this lawsuit path where they're like, I mean, if you go to a courtroom and say Monsanto G- Monsanto's Roundup gave me cancer, the jury's going to go, oh, yeah. But, you know, coffee is a carcinogen, right? Yeah. But I don't think you could convince a jury that's a non-scientific community to say, well, Starbucks coffee gave you cancer. They'd be like, get, get away from my coffee. Like, do not mess with my coffee. And so, but the IARC is like, oh, everything causes cancer. Everything causes cancer. But then if you talk to like oncologists and people that do cancer research, they're like, no, really? Like the only thing that definitely causes cancer is smoking, you know? Um, and so little things like that. So, so, so that's weird. But then there's like the agricultural health study and all this research that has been done. But again, it's like the dose makes the poison. So, yep. you know, that's, anyway, the world's gone mad. <laughs> so yeah, no, I am, uh, you know, going back to like coffee being a carcinogen, I think it's even more broader than that. And they say like hot beverages. So like oh, tea, yeah. or if you just drink hot water with lemon in it, yeah, like that yeah. is a carcinogen. Yeah. Um, and people also don't seem to understand that as you said, the dose makes the poison. So for example, yeah. I could I could OD on water. I could drink. It is possible for me to drink too much water and I could exactly. die by yeah, the, the dose depleting myself of electrolytes or something of that nature. But yeah, yeah. Uh, people don't seem to understand that. And also, if you look at the research, like you said, glyphosate is very safe. Um, yeah. It's actually historically 
I don't know if it's the safest, but it's definitely one of the most safest. Uh, it is. Insect is it? Uh, it's a herbicide. A herbicide. Yeah. One of the well, yeah, one of the most uh, safest or is the safest herbicide ever created thus far. And yeah. people also need to understand too that we don't grow our food in a vacuum. It's not yeah. a sterile environment. Uh, we do the best best we can with the conditions that we're given, and mm -hmm. the conditions have weeds and they have insects or pests. Yeah. Yep. So you need to deal with those. And how do you deal with we those? We need well, to. Yeah. 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 That's definitely probably one of the biggest ones. Yeah. And pesticide is actually like an umbrella term, which encompasses like herbicide, insecticide, fungicide, et cetera. So sometimes yeah. you can say, oh, pesticides and herbicides. It's like, well, herbicide is technically is a pesticide. pesticide. But yeah. So I would like to make that clarification because that's probably another thing I hear all the time is people like herbicides and yeah. yeah. And I'm like, so this is how it works, y'all. <laughs> um, yes, I think that's probably like a, uh, one of the biggest ones, but yeah, if you talk to some of the older guys around here, like, uh, the previous generation or two, you know, they used to have to spray these insecticides and I mean, all sorts of, a lot more chemicals, a lot worse than they are today. And so farmers are singing their praises compared to what it used to be. And someday, you know, our next generation or the generation after that, they'll look back and be like, oh God, remember in the early 2000s when we had to spray Roundup? God, thank God we don't have to do that anymore. But as of right now, it's definitely one of the safest herbicides we've ever had access to. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest myths is like, no, your food's not drenched in chemicals. Yes, we're using less, less it's, it's very well regulated. Um, I think the corporate control is another one. I mean, when you're looking at the GMO genetics, I would say it is pretty true that, you know, you do have like Monsanto is bought by Bayer and then you've got, you know, your Sagentas and Dow DuPont, you know, and, and they're all buying each other up, right? These companies do just keep getting bigger and bigger. And there's definitely some truth to the corporatization of it all. But at the same day, at the same time, we don't have to, I mean, we can still buy from like smaller independent seed companies, which I love to support as well. Mm -hmm. But for, for us, I mean, we feel like you get what you pay for and, uh, and having those genetics is, is worth it. And if somebody wants to buy a cheaper seed and they want to try something else, they can, but those are usually more like a smaller scale hobby type farmer that don't really depend on those yields to make a career. Um, the farm I'm on is a little over 2000 acres and, uh, and that's, that's, it's a full-time commercial farm, you know? So it's different when you have somebody that's just got a couple acres you know you kind of have to manage it differently so you know yeah big yeah, egg <laughs> big egg i hate those stupid myths because behind big egg is real family farmers that can still yeah. do a great job with conservation and you know we we've got awards here for farmers of the year for soil and water conservation and no-till farming and cover crops and so i think sometimes people think oh organic is is so pure but yeah well when there's there's some solid research behind organic farming but when that research becomes factual and discovered non-organic farms can do it too so mm -hmm. non-organic farms have all the tools in the toolbox that organic farmers do and then some so we just have like all the tools when when organics a little bit more limited yeah, and I mean, with organic, the way that it's currently done, from my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you can't do it like on the larger scales like you can with, let's say, using genetically modified foods. I mean, you can't, you're not going to be able to feed the same amount of people. They don't have the same amount of food yield or however the terminology is per acre. Yeah, yeah, I would say that's true. Um, 
And again, there's so many gray areas. Uh, okay. Can it be competitive sometimes, but generally speaking, not. But also the myth that organic is pesticide free is like the myth that drives me crazy. Like I've been to some organic farms where they're spraying a lot more than a non-organic farm is. Like as particularly in say like the fruit tree industry, if you say, talk to an organic apple grower, it's like, or, you know, apple growers, you say, well, are you organic? And you know, why or why not? And they say, no, I don't want to go organic because I don't want to spray that much. And so it's crazy because people think that organic's so pure, but when you dig in on the science and you talk to the farmers, you realize that that's not true. And economies of scale do matter. I mean, it, yeah. you could meet an organic grower or a non-organic grower that says, well, I don't use any pesticides. Well, yeah, because you have an acre, you can manage it by hand. But yeah, when it comes to feeding the world, there is no way in hell we could feed the world with no chemicals, right? Or pesticides. It's, it's just a necessary part of it. I always do an analogy. If you think about people being living, I mean, we need medicine, we need bug spray, we need food, we need sunscreen, we need all of these chemicals on our bodies to save ourselves. And plants need that too. They need nutrients. They can't compete with weeds. They'll die. You know, they need all these things. And it's our job as farmers to care for those plants, yeah. just like a doctor would care for us in our health. You know, something also that you brought up that I thought was, is really interesting that is a very common misconception is that in organic, somehow organic is pesticide free. And I, I know that when this is a, going back to my anti, anti-GMO days, that I was a big promoter of organic. And one of the reasons is that I thought that, oh, well, I didn't use any pesticides. And that's yeah. really, yeah. really common misconception is that somehow organic is pesticide free when nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying there's not instances like your local family, family farm or something where it's like maybe like a community growing operation or co-op as they call where they can do that on a much smaller scale. Mm -hmm, uh, but mm -hmm. when you get to when you get to the larger scales it's just not feasible it's, yeah it's exactly yeah I used to believe those myths too and that's another reason why I kind of started my page is you know the more you dig in on on it uh, and the more you dig in on labels the more you realize a lot of them are really misleading or just point blank not true and I've got a garden too that I just plant edibles for for us and um, I don't use any chemicals on it because it's like I don't know maybe I'm looking up. I'm looking at my garden now out the window. Uh, it's not very big. It's maybe like a yeah. 30 by 20 foot plot. And so I don't use any pesticides on it because it's just like a couple of this and a little of that. But then I found these nasty worms <laughs> and I, I went to go take a bite of this kale and it had these this nasty bright green worm and it was so gross it turned me off I didn't eat kale for like the rest of the year because it just, <laughs> I was like this is so nasty and so people don't realize you know when you're buying this perfect food in the grocery store um there's a reason why it looks perfect you know because it, it because it was sprayed and generally yeah. speaking so it's like when I'm sitting here going oh my gosh these bugs are so gross I I should have sprayed maybe or just been a little bit more conscious of picking that off by hand but the regulations for farmers behind any type of crop protect crop protectant product pesticide is um, very stringent and farmers go through ongoing trainings and certifications and hold licenses to make sure that they're doing it right and that we're doing the best we can to protect everybody's health and the environment as well. It's a very important part of farming. Farming is so ridiculously based in strong science and 
I don't think people understand that. I think they're just like, oh, you know, it, it, you just put a seed in the ground, water and sunlight, and there you go. And it's like, no, most no, people don't even know no. what an agronomist is. You know, when you, we deal with agronomists that have these degrees and specializations with what they do in caring for these plants. And I mean, it, it, we're constantly going through on, ongoing training to make sure that we know what we're doing and to improve our practices is a huge part of agriculture. People don't have a clue where the food comes from. Yeah, no, I mean, agricultural science is a whole branch of science. Yeah. And like you said, there's agronomists, they're the individuals, and then they deal with, uh, you know, how to make farming practices better or agriculture in general better and more efficient. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's definitely a disconnect there. And, you know, one thing I wanted to touch on, too, was the environmental impact of farming. Mm -hmm. uh, because farming does have a large impact on the environment, particularly when you're talking about, you know, the fertilizers, you know, the issue with the dead zone in the Gulf uh, and other things. And how is it that over the years, particularly using science, genetically modified foods, how ha has it lessened the impact, the environmental, environmental impact of actually growing food? So how has it become greener in a sense? Yeah, so I think uh, the science is definitely showing huge improvements. You know, you talk about something like the dead zone, right? But when I was down there, I actually met, I was in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I was talking to some researchers down there. Um, they're kind of affiliated with the, the uh, fishing industry and the, um, there's like a museum down there that kind of, and I talked to the researchers and they said that they don't really see the issues with fishing in the dead zone. Like, I think a lot of that too is kind of media hype. Okay. Uh, but when, when problems arise, I mean, there's science is on it to improve that. And so even here for us in Northeast Iowa, I mean, our farm is 15 minutes away from the Mississippi River. And so for places like us, I mean, you have the NRCS, National Resource, Natural Resource Conservation Service, that rolls out programs to encourage us to do more no-till farming and cover crops. So that's just one example. So where we are, we're really hilly. Uh, conservation is very important. And so they say, okay, a lot of farmers didn't want to do cover crops because it's, it's expensive. It's like an added input where you're like, or it's a new technology, it's a new program. And you got, sometimes you got like the good old boys that don't want to switch. They don't want to open up their minds to new ideas. Um, but fortunately there are programs that offer incentives to farmers or maybe they'll do like a cost share program to help offset those costs. And, and they're so <clears throat> interested in pushing the better science that they offer different programs incentives. Or maybe you get like a credit if you do no-till or whatever it is so every region state county is different but for us these are um, really important we started like a no-till society and so anyway <clears throat> um i think that's kind of the the main gist of it is was when problems arrive you say okay here's how we're going to do increased buffer zones we're going to try this cover crop and different ways to improve the environment which again is something that's really important for us as farmers. Now, if you look at the actual EPA statistics, agriculture accounts for 9% of, of greenhouse gas emissions, according to the US EPA. So that's EPA standards for the United States. So if you look at agricultural's carbon, carbon footprint as a whole around the whole world, that's going to be different. But for our country specifically, it's 9% with 4% of that coming from livestock, 2% coming from cattle. So of all the GHG emissions, you've got 2% coming from cattle, which is another kind of misperception. They say, oh, agriculture, <clears throat> cattle are destroying the planet. But like, 
where is that information coming from? You find that a lot of mm -hmm. that comes from animal rights activists or it comes from the flawed study from 2006 that was Livestock's Long Shadow, which was, again, funded by the animal rights vegan activists who are spreading a lot of misinformation or taking old, outdated, retracted data to try to like push this narrative. And again, you know, where the, just like the anti-GMO movement, you've got the anti-meat movement too. Their messaging is strong. They get celebrities, they get, um, they're paying a lot of money to change the narrative to try to convince people that it's all doom and gloom. And that's kind of the media in general for you, right? Like doom and gloom mm -hmm. sells, that fear mongering sells, whether that's for an ideology or for a food product, you know, like GMOs are bad, buy organic for three times the money. And so are, is there, is there ways that we can improve the environment? Absolutely. And we're working towards those goals every single day. But a lot of times the negativity is, is, is a little bit overblown, which is pretty standard for media hyperbole. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, if it, what, what is that saying? If it bleeds, it leads. Yeah, I mean, the, the media is definitely going to focus on anything that grabs your attention. Yeah. Whether, whether or not it's entirely factual, as we've come to see over the years. Uh, I mean, obviously, some media organizations are worse at this than others. But in general, I think it's fair to say with all of media that they tend to focus on the negativi negativity or more outlandish things in order to just grab attention. Right. I know from what I've read about um, over the years about <clears throat> agriculture is that it's definitely it's definitely gotten better from an environmental standpoint. So, I mean, regardless of human activity, whenever you're using, I mean, you need energy, right? And the 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 current way of getting energy is through fossil fuels. And you know, just like anything else, the agricultural industry uses fossil fuels. They use other things as well. But this has gotten better over the years as technologies have gotten better. So mm -hmm. particularly, you know, I was talking about, I didn't realize that as far as the dead zone goes, I didn't realize that it had improved so much or perhaps my, my view of it was a little bit more negative because of the things that I have read. But I know that I have looked at the science into, in a little bit more detail and it does look like over the years that things are definitely getting better. So yeah, the, the in, researchers in that area. Yeah, the researchers I talked to were like, what dead zone? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh, really? Like, okay. Yeah, so that's like the fishing's great. Like, you know, okay. they didn't really see the problem. But then again, those are a few people I talked to. I'm sure, you know, there's always multiple sides. There's always multiple avenues to get information. But the people that I spoke to directly, uh, you know, just didn't really feel that way at all. Um, but there's got to be obviously some truth to it. It's just you know, it might be, it might be on the more like, like deeper, deeper, like, you know, there's various layers, obviously, right. because it's not, it's very deep in the Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. So perhaps it's the, you know, as you go further down, like, you know, toward, you know, the first hundred feet or something like that, it's not yeah. really that big of a deal uh, where yeah. you would actually fish. But as you go further down, uh, perhaps because the, um, the runoff, that's where it settles within the, uh, within the water column. I don't know. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. I just know, that, so. I just know, like, for example, you know, so many of us have switched over to no-till farming in this area is for, as one example. Um, but it wasn't like that 30 or 40 years ago. Right. So uh, sometimes improvements are made, but that science and what's happening in agriculture doesn't always catch up to mainstream media. So it's, yeah, it's kind of like people talk about factory farming or livestock, you know, 
constantly being fed antibiotics. Well, there was some truth to that decades ago, but that's not a thing anymore. You know, and like yeah. livestock are livestock are not routinely given antibiotics anymore, partly due to um, FDA regulations and um, uh, just better biosecurity, better science. You know, better ways to care for livestock. You just don't really have the issues that you used to have. So, but <clears throat> good news doesn't always sell a story in the media. <laughs> no, no, it certainly doesn't. So yeah, that's, that's curious. Okay. So uh, I know that this isn't related to, uh, you know, growing crops, but it's definitely a part of farming. So the antibiotic thing that that's like in the hormone, that has been a big issue for certain, certain groups. And I know that when I was again, involved with the anti-GMO people, um, that they're also very concerned about the antibiotic use in the, um, within the farming industry, along with the uh, the use of hormones, so I was maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Some so of the, the funny thing. There. Yeah, so the funny thing about hormones is that they're actually not really allowed in any uh, livestock except for cattle. So when you see the label that says no added hormones, like on poultry or pork, it's strictly marketing. There's actually no such thing as added hormones in poultry or pork. Uh, so sometimes they're used in beef, the beef industry, but there's no nutritional difference. So we, some years we do growth hormones and some years we don't on our farm. Um, this year we didn't, last year, yes. Um, we're kind of just doing that as an experiment to see is it even worth the time and money to do it. It's just a little pellet under the ear, helps them grow a little faster, but the end product, if you're looking at, say, a steak, there's like a 0.6 nanogram difference. So you're looking at a fraction of a billionth of a gram. So there's no nutritional difference. Now, when you're looking at something like RBST and dairy, if you look at like a milk carton and it says no RBST, well, BST mm -hmm. is a hormone that cows naturally produce. RBST might just give them a little boost of a hormone that they already have. However, once again, you don't really need that anymore. I mean, it used to be more commonplace, but with the improvements in nutrition, genetics, housing, all these things, it's like farmers are no longer seeing that ROI, return on investment to using it. So uh, you'd kind of be hard pressed nowadays to find like a dairy farm that uses RBST. And a lot of it too comes down to consumer pressure. People don't want it, whatever. And then you're like, well, I don't really need it. Uh, using growth hormones as beef cattle is, is difficult. It's, it's expensive. It's time consuming. It's frankly uh, kind of a pain in the ass <laughs> to, yeah. run them through the, to run them through the chute. Okay. Hold still while we do this, you know, like this pellet under the ear, it's, it takes a skilled person to do it. Um, <clears throat> but um, yeah, again, with improvements in genetics and diet and nutrition and science efficiencies. And it's really not that commonplace. So same goes with antibiotics. You know, they used to be routinely given antibiotics. Uh, a lot of that came, you know, you'd hear about like factory farms or livestock are pump full of hormones and antibiotics. Again, these are myths. Antibiotics used to be more prevalent, but again, we've improved the science of housing biosecurity to go to say like, a large scale pig farm, for example, you know, you have to shower before you enter the barn, you have to shower when you leave the barn. So that way you're not bringing in any psycho diseases, bacteria, biosecurity. Um, so because there was issues with say antibiotic resistance in the past using antibiotics, now they've said, okay, the FDA had rolled out this new veterinary feed directive. So as of 2017, you actually can no longer really use a vast majority of antibiotics. Sometimes you can get some over the counter if an animal is sick. Uh, there are some available over the counter to use as needed, but there's still that withdrawal period before the animal can go to market. Uh, 
So I hope that I'm portraying this in a non-confusing way. <laughs> but at the end of the day, all meat and dairy products are antibiotic-free, all of it. So because it doesn't make that, it in. I mean, even if they took an antibiotic, it's not going to make it into the final product. Is what you're exactly. Yeah. yeah. So on that bottle, it'll say, you know, there's a 30-day withdrawal period, for example. So you have to make sure that that animal does not go to market until that withdrawal period's up. And they are tested, you know. Uh, livestock are tested. Every single animal that goes in the public food supply is, uh, is regulated and tested by the USDA that inspects the entire animal. Um, and then they'll sometimes test for different antibiotic residues and all that thing all that and if a farmer violates that you know they're blacklisted they can no longer sell i mean you get in big trouble you can get fined like if a dairy farm if they find antibiotics in milk the entire tank load is dumped and the farmer's fine so there are there are huge implications and there are huge safety measures in place to make sure that antibiotics do not enter the food supply so yeah. So again, there's a lot of this misinformation or it's older, outdated information. Nowadays, it's very commonplace to raise livestock with no antibiotics ever, even on the larger scale farms due to these improvements in ventilation, housing, biosecurity, all that. So <clears throat> we're constantly making improvements. And if an antibiotic is needed to treat a sick animal, that can happen. But again, it's a pretty small percentage. Like on, on our farm, I think we've probably got three or 400 animals here and maybe had to treat like five or 10 this year, you know, so mm -hmm. it's, it's really, really a small percentage and it, they're, they're an important part of animal health, but they don't deserve the demonization that they sometimes get in the media, you know? Yeah. I've definitely watched, you know, full disclosure, I've definitely watched documentaries about like antibiotics being abused. Documentaries. Funded, yeah. funded by yeah. vegan animal rights activists. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. A so, lot of those are uh, not prob pro probably. Um, I've definitely watched stuff about these. And I know that there's just, again, there's just so much misinformation out there. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's good to hear that. Well, because antibiotics are really important, right? I mean, even like in humans, I mean, it's one of the best medical science technologies that we have available for combating, combating uh, bacterial infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. And uh, bacteria, uh, bacteria resistance um, is definitely something that you know, society is becoming more and more concerned about. And, you know, we're concerned about abuses by doctors over prescribing antibiotics when people have like viral infections, because uh, you, you don't want to use antibiotics whenever, whenever you have a chance, you want to use antibiotics whenever you actually need them, because you know, like anything else, bacteria evolve and then they become resistant to these things. So we want to make sure that we yeah. have these, this tool for as long as possible. So I know that there was criticism and there's probably still ongoing criticism in the, um, in the food industry as well when it comes to using antibiotics on your actual, on your animals. And, you know, I definitely have read things saying that, you know, it's used regularly. You're saying it's not, of course, you know, that's just me being misinformed about what how antibiotics are used within within farming so yeah well and it used to be more commonplace um okay. but ever but it's been phased out over time okay yeah yeah so as of 2017 so i mean this is like three years ago only that that the fda said you know from now on to use these prescription or to use um these antibiotics you have to have a prescription from your veterinarian and it's very strict like i had a sick lamb once and i called my vet and i mean i was about to lose this lamb and he was like no i will not prescribe you anything because i haven't been on your farm in the past six months that's the regulation here and i was like really like and he was busy that day and i was like 
<clears throat> kind of annoyed because I was like, mm -hmm. but I really need this medication. Like, I know exactly what's wrong. I've seen this before. Hook me up. And he's like, nope, I'm not going to put my medical license on the line because I have not been there and I have not seen to treat and diagnose. And I was like, all right, amen. Like, it's, it works. <laughs> yeah. And so, so I'm not, I'm not mad. Like, it can be frustrating because they're like, oh, it's a pain in the ass. But at the same time, I'm not mad because it's, it's the law and I'm going to do what is required. And, um, and I appreciate the, the steps that have been taken to improve and reduce antibiotic usage and, and improve farmers' health and having a closer relationship with our veterinarian is, is always a good thing. So, yeah. You know, absolutely. Um, and I did end up yeah. getting the medication. I, I did end up getting you it. Saved, so you, saved, you saved it? Yeah. He was yeah. able to like, he was really busy, but he's like, oh, let me see. And he moved some things around and he was able to come out and I got it. So, so, <clears throat> you know, it's one of those things you're like, yeah, but like, this is, this is kind of serious. Like, can you kind of prioritize me a little bit here? You know? <laughs> yeah. So, <clears throat> yeah. So again, that's just building those relationships with your veterinarian is important. You know, absolutely. That's, um, <laughs> that's great. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that you said it was a lamb? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that the lamb made it and <laughs> that, you know, that more care is being taken within the, uh, within the farming industry or the livestock industry in order to just make sure that, you know, antibiotics are only being used when necessary. And, you know, simultaneously, I'm happy to see that on the human end too, because. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because of antibiotic. antibiotic well, and, vac and vaccines too. We talked about the importance oh, yeah? of vaccines, which are so popular <clears throat> in livestock too. So, you know, you see these problems that develop over time. That's what's beautiful when you think of science and why it's important to communicate science because it's like, oh yeah, if you looked at what it was like in the 90s when poultry were constantly given antibiotics uh, and then, you know, now they say, well, this is the problem. This is why they were given antibiotics. But now over the years, instead of doing that, now there's vaccine innovation. So now you can just prevent the problems before it happens. You don't have to worry about <clears throat> antibiotics and everything like that. So yeah. All around, we're seeing incredible improvements in agriculture. It's a really beautiful story to tell and doesn't really get a chance to be heard because A, science is not sexy. It's kind of boring and nobody wants to read yeah. a 20-page study. They want to just get the cliff note and the meme. <clears throat> and it's easy to put out memes and cliff notes by the people that are scaring you into paying more for a different product or to scare you into a different ideology, you know? So yeah, yeah. Fear no, absolutely. yeah, I totally agree with you on the point that science isn't really that sexy and there's this huge disconnect between what it is that scientists do and the general public. Um, because I think that people think of them as these individuals locked away, conspiring, you know, doing all sorts of I don't know, odd things that are somehow making the world better, but they don't understand it. And there's this lack of communication between what it is that science is doing and the general public, which is why science communication, something that you're partaking in, is such a needed asset, in my opinion, these days. Uh, because people just don't seem to understand. And because they don't understand, it leads to distrust, dis, uh, distrust uh, mm -hmm. fear, and you know you just kind of had this breakdown and, yeah and that's why we have like you know, the anti-science movement you have this rise of anti-intellectualism where you know, people are rallying against universities and these professors you know locked away in their ivory towers and of course mm -hmm. there's some disconnect between what they do there 
and the, you know, the lives of your scientists in a university versus the average person, but that doesn't mean that what they're producing is somehow less valuable. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, cause it, they are producing science Yeah, <laughs> and they're not, it's not just scientists within uh, universities. Of course you have scientists within large corporations such as, you know, the agronomists with Monsanto and the other food organizations that you uh, probably deal with regularly. Uh, but anyway, yeah. I'm just curious as to what your thoughts are with, you know, anti-science. I mean, you encounter a lot of anti-science people, I'm assuming yeah, as a yeah. science communicator. So For sure. um, yeah, like how, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, so yeah, you're absolutely right. And a lot of it too, sometimes when you talk to people that have been in science their whole life and it's all they know, they're not always good at understanding. Like sometimes I say that farmers are disconnected from the disconnect because they've been so in their little small town bubble that they don't really realize just how bad it is out there. Mm -hmm. So since I came from like an anti-science background and like when you go to like, oh my God, I went to a grocery shopping in Los Angeles last year and I wanted to like, I was like, oh my God, like so many labels that are just bullshit. But how many large scale farmers do you know live in downtown Los Angeles? So since I came from that side and have understood both sides of that very well, you know, people don't always understand what farmers do and farmers don't always know how to communicate that. <clears throat> Sorry. Oh, this cough congestion is driving me crazy. Anyway. Um, so, uh, so there's that. And then there's also the, some of the scientists that are very good at their jobs and they're very intelligent, but they're not always good at portraying what they do to the general public. So oh, it's yeah. like you talk to some scientists sometimes and you say, well, what do you do? And then they, talk way over your head and it's like okay but can you kind of dumb that down a little bit and then they try to dumb it down a little more and you still don't get it scientists have got to do a better job of remembering and i tell this to farmers too when i do i do public speaking as well on like a advocacy so if i'm speaking to the average farmer on science communication i have to dumb it all the way down and say you guys you have to remember that the average consumer does not know what a combine is they do not know what a soybean field looks like. They do not know the difference between, they don't know what a cow is versus a heifer. Like they don't, you know, the very basics of like where your food comes from. Um, And it's the same for science. So you've got these different avenues, but then at the same time, you also have a lot of scientists that are not allowed to speak out. And you've got farmers that work for, that are contract growers for say like a larger scale poultry farm but then they're not allowed to speak without going up the corporate ladder and the corporate chain through their marketing people and so you've got all these layers that are really killing the trust of our industries it's crazy to me like people should be allowed and that's why we're lucky to have these platforms right like for myself as the farm babe i don't work for anybody like this is something that i just started by myself uh i don't have to answer to anybody like it's just me i don't have any employees or bosses or anything so i'm fortunate to be able to talk about what I want to talk about, how I want to talk about it. But for, if I was, if I was an employee of something, or you look at like university professors that are being silenced, they're not allowed to have these platforms because of legal or corporate reasons, or they're worried about activists and they don't, they'd rather just stay silent than deal with the drama. Mm. But like, we have to stop being silent. Like we can't continue to let these activists and anti-science movement kick our asses. Like we just can't, we've got to speak up. 
And if we're not talking to scientists and farmers about science and farming, then where do we expect people to get our information? Like, of course, they're misinformed because they're getting their information from the wrong sources. And a lot of the right sources either aren't the best communicating or they're silenced. And it's super messed up, but... Yeah, I no, guess that's, that's I guess that's why we're passionate about what we do, right? <laughs> yeah, it's it, it's super super important in my opinion, and even I mean nowadays more than ever, just because of you know, all of the so I mean having access to all of this information through you know smart device in your pocket that everyone carries around with them these days is wonderful, right? But mm -hmm. unfortunately, there's a bunch of nonsense in there too. All this misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, etc. And people just don't know how to parse through all this information. They don't know who to listen to. Um, so it can be very, very confusing. And one point that you made that I really, really want to highlight and I can totally uh, relate to is the, the scientists not being able to communicate to the general public. And this isn't all scientists, but a good amount of them. The more research oriented, I would say, the ones that are very, very good at their uh, jobs in research, just for whatever reason, they don't know how to take whatever it is that they're working on and then communicate it on a lower level. Mm -hmm. I mean, they just, they just talk right past people or talk over them. And then people are, are just like, okay, that, that didn't help at all. And they may actually even leave more confused than mm -hmm. when, when they got there. So yeah. I, I think that that's why the role of a science communicator, and it'd be great if more scientists actually took up this role and attempted to develop their communication skills because yeah i mean that's really what it is it's just learning how to communicate better with people yeah and, and just making it interesting and funny and and you know like we need some celebrities in our corner you know what i mean we need like sen a sense of humor like funny videos i mean what sells what goes viral right what what goes viral is a lot of times humor and um yeah just making it more interesting and fun with celebrities that have a big reach so could definitely use a little more of that <laughs> no absolutely and just making yeah like you said making science more appealing more attractive um, just figuring out ways to do that you know i see a lot of people like successful science communicators online they do that through just creating memes mm -hmm. uh, because people love memes online who doesn't uh, but, have know, a just, good meme <laughs> yeah exactly right i mean just something as silly as that just create a good meme communicating something about science and then before you know it it goes viral and then people are like oh they learn a little bit little bit something and they laugh a little bit too at the same yeah time. yeah exactly but, but yeah it's it's definitely search, uh, an interesting time to be alive and from that standpoint when it comes to an access of information and having to deal with all of this this um, I, I call it like an infection of information like diseased information that we now have to deal with mm -hmm. um, it's it, it's pretty crazy but I do see hope. I mean, I definitely see hope. I, there's a lot of people out there who are changing their minds. Um, they're learning how the internet isn't always full of good information that somehow just because it's on the internet doesn't necessarily mean it's true, how to parse through the information. There's a lot of you know, courses pro uh, popping up here and there on how to be a safe consumer of information, if you will, in the digital age. Mm -hmm. And I know a, cer a certain aspect of what I do uh, with intelligent speculation and this podcast thinking critically is not only talking about science uh, but also talking about critical thinking and just learning how to you know be being open to being wrong how it is that you can structure a good argument things of that nature yeah for yeah. sure 
So it's definitely, it's definitely interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, do you, uh, so do you directly work, like do you consult with, I, I, you obviously work with farmers on a regular basis, but mm -hmm. I'm curious as if you like do a lot of consulting with um, actual scientists within the um, agricultural sphere um, to just learn more, like who do you go to, I guess, from, to get the better science? Yeah, so, you know, I'm a uh, primarily a keynote speaker. So when I started okay. the Farm Bay platform, it, you know, really has kind of blown up. And so I speak at a lot of conferences. So a majority of my information, pretty much all of it, um, comes direct from the source. So if I'm speaking at, like, for example, I spoke at Purina on their cow-calf uh, information and got to speak to the scientists and, and be in the room with people developing feed, right? So they're the ones that are researching and studying the rumen, how it works. And so, you know, when you learn information about feed and where it comes from and the scientists or, you know, I've been in the laboratory at University of Kentucky. I go to, I speak at a lot of universities. I speak at a lot of schools. Um, and then through there, you just kind of build a really strong network of people that do this for a living. You know, we've got to talk to scientists about science. And so a lot of it's just been building relationships, you know, followers ask me questions about something and it's like, well, I don't claim to be an expert on that topic, but I know someone who is. And so a lot yeah. of it's just connecting those dots. So I love learning from the scientists and taking what they do and digesting, making it digestible so that the average person can understand it. So a lot of it is coming from that. Um, I do like do a little bit of work as a social media influencer too. Uh, so sometimes I partner with different brands, like you had talked earlier about renewable energy, fossil fuels. Well, another cool thing that's great about some larger scale farms. Um, so one of my partners is this company called Brightmark and they trap methane on larger scale dairy or pig farms and they sell that gas back to the grid as like a renewable natural gas. So now instead of using some of these fossil fuels or whatnot, now we can eliminate methane from going into the environment while separating those liquid solids and gases and using that gas to power homes and businesses. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. Like we're literally using cow manure to power homes. Like it's neat, you know? And it yeah, also that's, helps That's farmers. fascinating. Yeah, and it's, so it's like anaerobic digestion or biogas. Yeah. And so it helps the farmers be more profitable. I mean, it's really a win-win-win. Um, and so Brightmark's a partner of mine because you know I help spread their message. They tap into my audience and it's really just kind of like an, an extension of advertising where, they, where I can share what they do with my primarily agricultural facing audience. So I do some stuff like that um, and learn a little bit more about these companies and brands. I tour their facilities and learn hands-on from the experts what it is that they do. So that's really kind of what I'd like to stress to most people too is like where you're getting your information from is make sure you're getting it direct from the source. Like sometimes I feel people say, oh, well, you know, you shared that article about the dairy industry, but that was funded by the dairy industry. And it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> like, because it's like, of course, there's aspects where like, they might uh, blow things out of proportion or do something that's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, too much of a salesy, P yeah, yeah, salesy PR. There's yeah. a difference between like salesy PR compared to like the actual research and what that research says. So yeah, but it's like, well, you know, if, if you have a question about your cell phone, you talk to your cell phone manufacturer. If you talk to, you have a problem with your car, you talk to your car manufacturer. So if you have a question about where your food comes from, shouldn't you talk to a farmer? Like if you have a question about genetics and seeds and the science behind your food, like shouldn't you talk to the people that 
research and development. And so it's kind of this common sense that's lost where you say, yeah, I mean, you need to go to the source to learn information. And so yeah. I always say, you know, why are you trusting Facebook Karen over the PhD that does it for a living that's got 30 years of experience in their respective field? Well, what does Facebook Karen has? Maybe she's pretty, maybe she's likable, maybe she's their friend, maybe she's delivers the information in a more palatable way. The PhD might say, well, here's the research and then go into a long drawn out, like put you to sleep type of lecture that doesn't resonate with the average person. Whereas Facebook Karen says, you'll never believe what happened when, <laughs> you know, and it's like this clickbait type action. And so that's, I guess, what's so important about communicating science is saying like, how, how can we work together, cross over different paths, talk science communication to agriculture that talks to vaccines, that talks to dietitians, that talks to, you know, the personal training industry, whatever, so that everybody's on the same page with knowing the credible science from the credible source. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that, I mean, that's a that's a great point. Who who do you listen to? Well, just go to the source. Why are you listening to some influencer on Facebook versus an actual scientist who works in the field? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if you're talking about science, you should be going to the scientist. That makes yeah. the most sense. Yeah, that makes the most sense. But yet mm -hmm. here we are, you know, talking about how a large percentage. I say a large percentage of the population, but it's like too many, right? Too many people are not getting or going to whatever Facebook groups or listening to some sort of social media influencer that has no idea what they're talking about, but they yeah. just kind of promote these things but, because it sounds good and they know that it sells products. Yeah, but influencers can be very beneficial too, you know? I mean, but it just depends upon like who are their partners and what are they doing and what's the science say? At the end of the day, you just have to follow the science, right? So it's, there's, there's some, influ I mean, I work as an influencer, right? But who are my partners and what is the science-based source behind it? And I would never work with a product or service that wasn't credible, that was prevent, that was, I mean, I get, I get asked all the time, like, well, would you sell? And then I check out their website, I check out the science, and then I ask for more, like, can you elaborate on this? Like this, mm -hmm. this website claim, ex extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So for Carl me, it's Sagan. just like, <laughs> yeah. And so for me, it's like, well, I, I won't, like you couldn't, there's no amount of money you could pay me or there's no thing that you could do to convince me to promote what you're doing because you don't have, the science isn't there. And I've turned down a lot more partnerships than I've said yes to just because I care about my credibility. And so, you know, if, I mean, if I were to do something that was bullshit, like my fans would, would like crucify me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Your, your so, audience will it, hold you accountable. Yeah. And so again, it's that, it's that, trust and credibility where you can work with influencers to take the science and make it interesting. Like I talk to scientists all the time that maybe don't do the best job explaining or they don't have the proper platform. So you can do it, but, uh, and, and you can do it effectively. So influencers play an important role, but then you have some that care more like the food babe, right? Like my, my brand, the farm babe is a spinoff of the food babe. So yeah, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't want to badmouth anyone, <laughs> but since we're I going will. there, yeah, yeah, there, there it is. But, yeah, but yeah, you look she, at somebody, she, 
She's very but guilty like, of that. Yeah. She's, she's selling products that aren't based in science. She's using fear mongering. She's been discredited and she's, and you know, you look at something like there's the hashtag visit a farm food babe, like so many farmers were fed up. Like she has received so much backlash over time. And if you check out on Twitter, hashtag visit a farm food babe, you see thousands of posts saying, Hey, Hey, food babe, you wait, did I say visit a farm, farm babe? I meant to say hashtag visit a farm food babe. So when you have hundreds of farmers saying, you know what, what you're saying isn't true, but we'd really like to have you out on our farm to share with you what we do and how this is the real facts. She ignores it all. And so there's a difference between caring about misinformation and profits while completely ignoring the science. Like if somebody were to tweet me and say, we want to fly you down on our farm. I'd be like, yes, let's go tomorrow. Like I want the science. I want to connect with the people that do it for a living as opposed to ignoring the science and pushing a narrative that's fear mongering for profit. So there's definitely a different way to do it. Um, But yeah, I mean, if somebody were to say, Hey, Michelle, you know, you didn't quite get the statistic right. I would reevaluate that and say, oh my gosh, you're right. And I would edit that or, or, uh, or specify or like maybe even push back on that person and say, no, actually this is right. And here's the source. Here's the science. At the end of the day, what does the science say? Yeah, so. I think you made a very good point there that, you know, with influencers, obviously you're an influencer who works very closely with science, with the scientists. And that's right. really important, particularly because you're working in the realm of agriculture and there's a bunch of science. <laughs> um, yeah. And then there's, there's other influencers like the food babe who is out there promoting anti-GMO and other sorts of nonsense. Yeah. And, and then people, you know, even when people she's offered, what's that? People call her out, people call her out and then she just bans them. She just deletes the comment. And it's like, yeah. that's not how you build credibility. Like the second you just have to ban and block everybody that like disagrees with you or challenges you, that's when you lose credibility. You know what I mean? So there's the but Facebook it, group. There's the Facebook group called Banned by the Food Babe. <laughs> no way. 10, there's 10,000 people in the Facebook group Banned by the Food Babe. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's, yeah. That's and too I think funny. I, I think I've banned like 60 in five years. And most of them were like, like the vegan animal rights extremists that were like sending me nasty messages that were just like mean. You know what I mean? So it's pretty yeah. rare I block somebody. But, but um yeah, because when you have to do that, that's when you're like, okay, well, what are you hiding that you had to ban 10,000 people? You know what I mean? That's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, that's this a lot of people. people in the group. <laughs> it's insane. Uh, you definitely see that with individuals who are protecting an ideology and not an actual, um, so it, it's a belief system, right? Or an ideology. Um, it's, it's not scientific at all where you kind of update your worldview when you're presented with new evidence. What they're trying to do is preserve this little bubble that they want to live in that doesn't reflect reality. It doesn't reflect reality. And you don't see that in just this space. You see this in other spaces too, uh, where you, you have a belief system or an ideology that exists in a world that has facts that conflict with what these people believe. And exactly. when the facts conflict, they don't want to hear it. They just kind of tune it out or they ban you or whatever. Yeah. And then yep, they just continue exactly. marching, marching along. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, that's not, I, that's not how I prefer to live my life. And I know with my platform, I encourage people as much as possible to, to not do this, that your worldview should be aligned with the evidence because once your worldview aligns with the best available evidence from there, you can make the best decisions for yourself, mm-hmm. your family, your friends, et cetera. Exactly. Yep. So we need some more of that moving forward. 
hopefully, <laughs> yeah, hopefully, uh, hopefully more and more people will catch on to that and say, you know what, this, this, this is what I need in my life. I need, I need to be a little bit more open-minded and that it's okay to be wrong, basically. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's okay. Sure. These things happen. Nobody's going to be right all the time. I'm sure that you've been wrong in your life with maybe mm -hmm. some, some of the science. And once you talk to a scientist and they clarified it for you, then you're like, okay, well, this is going to be kind of my new narrative because I've got new information. So therefore I can be better today than I was yesterday. Exactly. And that's what science is always about, right? Like I think scientists and peer review process and everything is always about trying to find holes in an argument and figure out how we can improve all that. And that's, that's the beauty of science, right? You know, you talk about what was happening decades ago that doesn't happen anymore. And you talk about the improvements and, you know, that's really what it's all about is, is that constant desire for learning and growing and self-discovery and like scientific evidence and, and study. So yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I, I like to describe it as a never-ending optimization problem. We're always trying to be better. We just yeah. want to be better tomorrow than we are today. And if that means that we have to throw out or, you know, adjust what we believe today versus, you know, versus tomorrow, then that's okay. You know, we're, yep. we're, we're better. We're better people for it. And we're going to be able to create a better society uh, because we have now better information uh, today than we did yesterday. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, um, yeah, is there anything else? I mean, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Otherwise, this might be a good point to wrap it up. Um, no, I think uh, I will say kind of to your point about being able to change your mind and credibility and silencing, you know, kind of to that point. What are your thoughts? I feel like uh, if you look at something like the anti-GMO movement years ago, it feels like mm -hmm. it's kind of fizzled out over the years. I feel like when yeah. we do communicate the science better, we are, when there are more people in our space kind of debunking these myths, um, and you know, you look at somebody like the food babe who's, who's peddling these products and constantly being called out, it's going to kill that credibility. You look at the same with food labels. If you say, well, organic uses pesticides, GMOs are not bad. The science shows this, the science shows that. And you look at all these labels, and that ultimately is what, what kind of erodes trust. And so it's like, I want to encourage, I guess, food companies um, to, to stop that. <laughs> yeah, no, I, as long as, they'll do it as long as they can make a profit. And yeah, as but, soon as the consumer understands through science communication yep. uh, that these labels, that these products are not doing what they think that they do, then the consumer will stop consuming them, stop buying yeah. them. The, and it's, it's I mean, really, at the end of the day, money talks, so. Yeah, it's really a short-term gain though, you know? Like, for example, I was at an organic farm conference last year and it was put on by Organic Valley. And um, it, like I said, it was at an organic farm conference. And so everybody around me were like organic farmers. And I was really surprised to hear them speak up and say that they're like, I don't even want to be an organic farmer anymore because nobody believes me. Like nobody, ha organic doesn't have integrity anymore. Like people don't buy it as much as they used to. You know, they're like, I'm, I'm embarrassed with how our marketing is portrayed. You know, I, a lot of farms go organic because they think they can make more profits, which is, which is fine. There's a market for it. Be more profitable by, by all means from a, farming perspective but when that organic milk is sold to a label that says conventional farms are destroying the planet and gmos are terrible and if you're not buying our product you're, you're poisoning everything then the farmer is kind of going you know you're kind of putting me at a tough spot here because i just want to produce organic milk uh whether they believe in the process more or they 
want to be more profitable, fine. But all of a sudden they're like, but that's how you're advertising what I'm producing. Like, I don't want to put down my fellow farmers. Like a lot of farmers are, are stuck in this hard place because they're like, I want to do organic, but I don't believe that my non-organic friends and neighbors are bad people. They just have a different marketing or different practices, but they do a good job too. So, you know, it's one of these things, I think the more we're kind of like diminishing the, this misinformation, the more traction we're having. But I hope that, and I feel like the tides have been turning. I feel like food marketing now isn't nearly as bad as it was, say, five years ago. You know, so I guess, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I, I think that the tide is turning. And when it comes to the anti-GMO movement, um, so one thing I can look to in particular is that in the 2016 presidential election, one of the candidates, uh, Bernie Sanders, was promoting GMO labeling, which is nonsensical. I mean, and I was a proponent of labeling during my anti-GMO days uh, mm -hmm. because I thought that, that somehow that this would help the public be smarter consumers if you allow GMOs to be labeled. But then I realized at some point <laughs> that that labeling is nonsensical because you really, you, you can't tell any difference um, mm -hmm. when, when it's been modified versus when it's not been modified. You know, what techniques even deserve labeling because there are, there are so many different technologies that are used in food science to create new foods. How do you, how do you choose which ones then deem a label versus others? And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it just becomes ridiculous. It's so nonsensical. Anyways, yeah, yeah, it's completely nonsensical. But then if you look at, uh, so his platform uh, this past election season, so he just ran again for president in 2020, uh, Sanders did, he didn't say anything about it. There was nothing about GMO labeling within his campaign mm -hmm. whatsoever, mm -hmm. nothing. So he ran, I mean, I wouldn't say it was, a cornerstone of his campaign in 2016, but I saw quite a bit of him promoting GMO labeling uh, in 2016, and now in 2020, there is none of it. And yeah, I noticed that too. Is I think more and more people are becoming aware of how much the non-GMO label or the non the non-GMO project label is just a bunch of nonsense too, because it they really can't even is. yeah they can't even guarantee that there's not genetically modified foods in there. Not to mention that they're slapping it on products that you wouldn't even you couldn't even genetically modify if you wanted to. Like for example, yeah. you know, the, at the beginning of this, at the beginning of this talk, uh, I mentioned the non-GMO label on Himalayan sea salt or pink sea salt. Like that's right. just, that's just complete nonsense. And right. just going to slap a label on something that, so you can uh, mark the price up on it. Yeah, but, I noticed uh, that too. In yeah. 2016, yeah, definitely. I remember listening to Bernie Sanders going, God, this guy's an idiot. Like, I just wanted to bang my head against the wall. And I still don't much care for the guy, but he's definitely softened his agricultural tone. Like, stay in your lane. You know what I mean? There's a lot of politicians that just well, that's all need of politics, to talk though. to farmers. I mean, yeah, oh <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, true. like, there's so much, there's so much <laughs> anti-science in politics these days. You'll oh, find it yeah. on, you find that's it, unfortunately, crazy. on both sides of the aisle. Oh, yeah. And one of yeah, the 100%. things too that I, I take offense, not offense, but like I'm critical, I should say, is the uh, fact that we're so anti-nuclear in this country, nuclear power, um, when it is next generation nuclear power is incredibly safe compared to older reactors. And then like when you compare it to other forms of energy, it's, it's remarkably safe. And yet we're not building these power plants when we really need to be moving away from fossil fuels right now. And this is, mm -hmm. this is a very good route to do that. And, but you will see uh, politicians, this particularly happens with the Democrats more than the Republicans, but again, they're both 
they're both guilty of it, where they, they don't entertain nuclear power. Uh, this may be shifting uh, to, I recently saw something about with that Green New Deal, where they would entertain uh, next generation nuclear power, which they absolutely should. So there's been some softening there. And I, so when it comes to the promotion of science, I think that we are definitely having an impact. And I've seen that yeah. too. Um, I mean, my views on genetically modified food or GMOs, I should say, uh, was changed by an actual scientist taking the time on Facebook to have a discussion with me. Somebody that mm -hmm. I went to graduate school with who went on to get his PhD um, and now works in um, some sort of, he works at a company. But anyway, he took the time out of his day to sit there and have a respectful discussion with me on Facebook about how GMOs are. Yeah, I have, I have done of science. Yeah, I have done that numerous times with my friends on Facebook. Yeah, and it's cool. Like, yeah, probably five, six years ago, I, I started the farm bait five and a half years ago now. So yeah, it was about that time, I guess, I started it because like, so many friends were sharing misinformation about GMOs that I was like, would, would respond. And then I was like, you know, maybe I should just start my own platform because I became passionate about wanting to, to tell the real truth about agriculture, but I also didn't want to like bog down my friends. Like I don't want, I don't want to come off like, too like preachy like soapbox you know yeah, so I was yeah. like, well, i'm just gonna i'm just gonna start this page like if you guys want to follow me cool and if you don't you don't have to like it was just like my own little personal blog to just like talk about things that i that i found interesting that i hoped other people did too and it turns out they do <laughs> so um but a lot of my friends are really supportive and when i think about what my news feed was like six years ago with my friends compared to what it is now it's like awesome like you can make an impact but you know, how do we make an impact? Well, my friends trust me because they're my friends. So it's like, do you always occasionally have that one person that you can't reach? But if you build that credibility, like people feel connected to you as a friend, they feel like they can trust you and you bring solid science in a respectable way and you push back on people with a polite and respectable way and you're not like trying to belittle people or make them feel small or stupid, but you know, putting yourself in their shoes and say, hey, I get it. I used to be scared of GMOs too. But here's what I've learned um, from actually growing this stuff. <laughs> and so, so I hope that that means something, you know, and, and it does. It does for a vast majority of people. There's always going to be those couple percentage of extremists. But generally always. speaking, always. but generally speaking, if you're, if you're polite about it, uh, you can reach a lot of people through SciComm. And it's been definitely just an excellent platform to see grow and, and help people. And help no, the planet. I, yeah, I, I categorically agree, particularly with your comments about being respectful. Um, you're never going to reach anybody if, whenever you respond to them, that if you do it with some sort of condescension or oh, yeah. like you, you're never going to reach anybody. So it's exactly. really important. What I tell people um, is just have a respectful discourse. Uh, there's just no be reason nice. why you need to yeah be nice. There's no reason why you need to yell at each other. That is something that is severely lacking in the online space. So I think that yeah. people really, really appreciate it when they see that somebody taking the time, they're linking with, you know, they have references included and the discourse is respectful. You know, you just yeah. kind of maintain your composure. And then another thing that you said too is building relationships. I, I think one of the best ways to change minds is by building relationships with people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you definitely, the people have to be comfortable, they have to get to know you and then eventually they'll open up. And even with those people that are just obstinate and just, you know, thick headed or whatever, just don't change their minds. You know, you can go back and forth for a while. You can see you're getting nowhere. There are going to be people who sit on the fence and read those comments. Mm -hmm. and you know, you're never going to see them. You won't interact with them, but 
you could have positively impacted their life because the silent observer <laughs> yeah exactly the silent observer and i think it's really really important with conversations like that that we acknowledge a silent observer uh, yeah there's minds being changed there as well even if you're not directly interacting with them but they're reading it so there's an indirect effect there yeah absolutely the silent observers are are usually the ones that are very much movable middle you know like yeah. um i i have a friend who's like you know, very strongly anti-vax. And even though I uh, definitely don't agree with her, it's still like, I, I read like the entire commentary because like she'll post a video, of course it's a YouTube video, right? From some guy that has no experience in it. But I, I'm like, where, how is she coming up with these ideas? Like, how does she feel this way? Like, I want to understand where and why she's scared of this. So I, watch the video but then in the comment section you know you get all this pushback and you watch the dialogue and it's like oh yeah okay so this youtube video has been debunked for years you know and so by having that discourse you know and and, and even i uh i've pushed back on her politely numerous times and and then she says well here's the evidence you know from the cdc or from the fda that this this person was vaccine injured or whatever so then you go back to science communication you know who i think does a great job of science communication in the medical world is Z-Dog MD, okay? Oh, yeah. And like, why do we love yeah. Z-Dog MD? Like, he's funny, he makes it interesting, he does music videos, he uses analogies, like he makes science fun, he makes people think about, about it in an interesting way. And so I asked him once, I said, hey, what do you say to people that, I mean, I'm like, look, she showed me evidence from the CDC proving that sometimes people can have an adverse reaction to a vaccine. And he, did, he gave me the best analogy ever, um, he said it's like seatbelts. And I was like, oh my God, like seatbelts save lives. We all know that. Everybody wears a seatbelt. What once in a very rare instance and if some weird freak accident or something, yeah. a seatbelt can kill somebody or hurt somebody. And so it's like, I get it. And like, I'm, I don't have any kids, but if I had kids, you know, and somebody, I would, I would just listen to my doctor. I would trust the science. But like for the people that are really scared, it's like, okay, think of it like a seatbelt. Like, I promise you they save lives. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But anyway, I think that's kind of important to understand different sides of an argument, to understand where the information's coming from and how to like relate it to the general public and say like, I use analogies in agriculture all the time. Like plants are living, we're living, we all need chemicals. We need sunscreen or bug spray. Plants need bug spray and all that stuff too. So Maybe not sunscreen, but you get, the, actually, yeah, they do sometimes. <laughs> you got to roll out the netting or protect them from different weather elements. You know, you never know. So yeah, there's all sorts of things, but yeah, no, science, science communication is important and it's a, it's a good platform to utilize and uh, how we can help move society forward, I guess. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the analogies, making it fun. You know, we were talking about that earlier too. That's, that's a critical part of it because people you know, like to consume their information in certain ways. And it's really, really important that we create information that they want to consume um, mm -hmm. and that they're learning something in the process that's really valuable to society. Because at the end of the day, the reason why you and I are even talking, you know, through a computer, I'm kind of enjoying all the luxuries of what it's like to be a human in 2020, even though it's been a challenging year nonetheless. Uh, but it's, be, it's because of science, scientific enlightenment. You yeah. know, a lot, at some point, humanity developed this and it's just been great yeah <laughs> i mean it 100%. has led it has led to all of these wonderful technologies uh which are underpinned by somebody who did science and 
people I don't think really understand that. And it's really important, I think, you know, play a, a pivotal role in communicating that to them, to teaching yep. them. Instead of just instead of just you know memorizing facts that science has produced for us, to actually learn to appreciate science. For yeah. Them, yeah. Which is like it's like literally the best instrument or tool that we've ever developed. For and sure. I don't think your average person really appreciates that. Yeah. So. Completely agree. Celebrate farmers and scientists. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Actually, anyway, yeah. it says it right on my coffee mug today. The right to know requires the responsibility to learn. Support farmers and scientists. Everybody says, we have a right to know what's in our food. No, you have the right to talk to the experts that can teach you about your food. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's very true. You, have, you, should, you should learn about, people should be curious about their food, and then they should talk to people like yourself or the scientists or whomever mm -hmm. and to learn more about it. But anyway, yeah, it's, it's been great, Michelle. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, conversation has been wonderful. So for, for those who are listening to, to, uh, to this episode, where exactly can they find you? Where can they sure, find the so, farm babe? Yeah, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here today. My website is thefarmbabe.com. You can find Farm Babe as my Facebook page. It's where I do most of my outreach. It's just Farm Babe. Um, and then my handle on everything else is the Farm Babe. So if you search for at the Farm Babe on Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, whatever, you'll find me. And uh, I just try to utilize as many platforms as I can to bridge that gap, so. All right, wonderful. Definitely looking forward to more content and more of the farm babe as far as uh, guest appearances, you know, influencer stuff in the future. Yep. Uh, anyway, for those of you who are tuning in, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, stay tuned until next time. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.